Hey everyone, thanks for joining us again on All Things Evangelism Podcast. I am here for the third time with my friend Jasper St. Bernard from the United States of America. He and I met maybe it would be about 15 years ago now. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Around there, around 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah, something like that. 13 to 15, yeah, wow. And he is someone who, he's a thinker. I call people like Jasper, he's a, he's a logician by nature, by just disposition. Uh, and he's now gone on to study philosophy. Um, and he is uh, someone who loves scripture. And he's an African-American. So I thought in the light of all of the issues that are happening in the United States and around the world, and how we're all focused on and discussing uh, racial justice, um, yeah, he and I just decided to have a a few conversations and we're calling this uh this part this component of all things evangelism um we don't love each other so as a, as a series for those of you guys who haven't turned in in all things evangelism we're, we've done a series called why evangelism doesn't work and our three-part so far three-part discussion is about loving each other irrespective of our differences our cultural backgrounds and our race so um hey thanks man for joining me again yeah yeah thanks this is i'm glad to be here yeah it's good to be here man it's good to chat and uh, so guys today we're gonna just jump right in i'm gonna ask a couple questions here jasper so i'm gonna make a comment and then ask you a question mm -hmm. i have a friend who is he works for the north american division his name is john boston i met him because he came out and worked for our conference and he's been very very much into the whole uh, the black lives matter movement and he's been calling on adventist christians in the in the church to you know from the pulpit preach about racial equality stand up for racial equality which i think is a really good thing and but at the same time there's i've got a pastor friend here in australia who is a friend of john's and eyes and he's a little bit frustrated with with john's communication because a lot of what he's communicating is about politics and um, how to structure government and different ways that government can intervene into uh, American life and change circumstances, you know, for the better. And so this pastor doesn't have a problem with that necessarily, but he thinks that he basically made a case to me the other day. He said, the most, uh, the most, the best thing we can do to achieve racial harmony in the Adventist church or anywhere is to do evangelism. And the reason why is because racism is a heart issue, not a, a government issue. Mm -hmm. And so obviously government has a part to play when it comes to, you know, keeping people from hurting other people, keeping people from depriving other people of some basic necessities and rights, you know. Um, but he feels like if you, if you focus, this pastor here is thinking, if we focus too much, then we become political pawns rather than people who affect, you know, a real massive change. And so, you know, I, I don't disagree or agree. I think like he has some good points. You know, I think there's a place for us as Adventists to get involved in saying, hey, listen, our government should help in this area for these people or uh, we need to have new policies in, in, in this area. Like, I think that's fine. Um, but I do think he has a point to a degree, right? Like racism being a hard issue and us not being political pawns. What are your thoughts in that regard? Hey. Yeah, no. So um, as you were talking, 
Okay, so the I'm trying to figure out the best way to attack it. So the okay, so one thing I would say to that is I wish that Adventists would realize that racial injustice. And now I'm not indicting Boston or the other pastor with, yeah. with what I'm trying to say. I'm just working through like what I heard from both of them. I think that Adventists need to get it in their head that racial harmony is not a political issue. It is mm. a human, it's a human issue, right? Yep. That is addressed by the God of scripture. So mm. the so you can fall into several ditches, but two are like prominently coming to my mind. One ditch is to think is it that I hear is some Adventists get say like, well, you know, we don't really need to deal with that. We just, you know, if we and they kind of like hide behind Jesus, like we'll just preach Jesus and we don't have to worry about those issues. I truly think that's a ditch. I think the other ditch though is that we need to appeal to government to fix it. Because I think that too is a ditch. I think because the government can't fix a heart. Right. It can't. So I think that the gospel explicitly touches on this. So one of the things that I think about often, uh, or I've been thinking about often lately, is uh, the, the Bible in the New Testament in several places assures us that God is no respecter of persons. That's right. Yeah. Why, is he, why do the gospel writers go through that much work to assure us of that? It's yeah. because I believe human beings are very much respecters of people, like just uh, like the natural man, like charts out who to respect and who not to respect. And the Bible's trying to assure us that God um, doesn't do that, right? And so, I, and I think about the, the book of Galatians where Paul is writing, you know, we, we highlight verses about the kingdom of God and who won't inherit it, who will inherit it. That's later in the book. We talk about, we, we like to talk about, you know, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but yet not I, but Christ lives in me. We love that verse in the book of Galatians. What strikes me is very fascinating about that book, right? So Paul is trying to work through what is and is not the gospel. And mm -hmm. that, you know, the, the, the false gospel is anathema. Like that's what he's trying to articulate. But, but Paul recounts an episode in the beginning of this letter where Peter struggles yeah, right. with this issue. So That's now good. what is Paul, is Paul taking, is he digressing? Is he taking a detour? I don't think that's what's happening. I think what Paul is saying or communicating to us through the spirit of God is that the way we treat each other is intimately related to our understanding of the gospel. Yes. So much, and I think I think Paul is just picking up what Jesus did, right? So when you think about the 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 parable of the par the Pharisee and the tax collector, or yep. the publican, whatever translation you're reading, there's an editorial remark that Luke puts in there, where he says that he he lists who or he makes clear who the audience of this parable is, and it is those who uh, believe they are righteous in themselves and right. despise others right, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. so i think the the natural outworking of self-righteousness is this despising of the other it and it creates these hierarchical lists of who belongs and who doesn't belong and, and yeah. that's why it's no coincidence that in groups and out groups often look like people that look like you right. whether along class issues whether along race issues um you know sex and gender like when the heart is 
navigating in that old space, the old man, then it starts to parse out humanity in this very unnatural way, right? So then what the, if that's true as Christians, then we, need, we look out on the world and we see racial injustice. I'm deeply passionate about racial justice and injustice, but I'm also, I, I constantly am praying about my methodology because I think it is unreasonable to ask a natural human being or yeah. a, a, a human being functioning in, in the natural space to unnaturally do right by the other. Like, I just don't think that works. Right. I, think it's, I, I think it's illogical. I, don't, I, I think there's a breakdown, right? So um, what am I saying? So like, so the God, yeah. what I'm saying is that as Adventists, we need to be under, and, and that's why I think we have that lesson. We've talked about this, so I won't rehash it, but yeah. like uh, the way we have that lesson from the, our, our elders, right? The pioneers who were deeply active in the work of racial justice. Yeah. Like they were deeply active in it, but their Fanatical motive. So yeah, I just heard some crazy stuff about how Adventists got like, just post-slavery, they were cruising down the Mississippi in this like boat they called the Freedom something or other, yeah. risking their lives, dude, getting lynched, yes. getting basically going down there to educate freed black slaves, like risking their like it was crazy, like bringing people to the north to give them right. jobs and create right. industry around black communities, like they were pretty intense, like it was a yes. big deal, but they weren't necessarily saying, hey let's overturn constitutional principles because America is inherently bad. They were basically now, they, saying, yeah. No, I was just going to, the, the, they're, they're doing something really interesting there. They're, what they do in a lot of those articles is they actually hold up the Declaration of Independence. Yes. And they say, look, look at, look at what this, this says. Yeah. And so are you, you are being inconsistent with this, right? Yeah. And so I think they, I think that is a very, powerful and unique challenge it's not like we got to start over burn it down it's not saying that what it's saying is that there's yeah. been a misstep if what yes. you wrote here was what you felt then you need to do right by that group of people and i think exactly. that is that is the approach that makes sense mm. to me me too man I, I was just listening to this guy he's a, a black american economist and i can't remember his last name it's walter something or other and I watched the documentary of this dude yesterday, and it's called Taller, like Bear No Fools or something. And Walter, I think uh, I almost want to, uh, what's, I'll, I'll, it'll come to me maybe. Walter Williams is, a, is his name. And he's known to be like a high level thinker amongst the intelligent. He's known, like, he, the guy's sharp. Like, he's very, a very well respected guy. And he was basically making a case I never thought about ever in regards to human, uh, human beings and their rights. He, and this is crazy. So, okay, just to give a history of this dude, Walter, his name is Walter Williams. He's a black economist from the US. He's old now. He's born in like 1939 or something. And he, he was in the civil rights era, a support, he was a radical. Mm -hmm. uh, he was not a supporter of Martin Luther King. He was a supporter of Malcolm X and just felt like whatever, was necessary to affect equality that's that was the path you know whatever okay it, it wasn't nonviolent resistance that's fine if that works violence whatever whatever resistance was necessary would be fine with walter and he tells stories in the documentary about his time in the military man the guy was so so sharp and so clever it's really i, I would recommend anyone listen to it anyways it's called something like bear no fools anyways so he says that as he studied economics, he went into college, started to study economics. He became, he said, he says he became a new kind of radical. 
and he became like a radical free market capitalist. And the reason why he did that is he, he, he began to believe that the basis, how do, how do you say this? Uh, I'm getting myself in a, in a hole here. There's so many things I could say, but okay. So he basically began to believe that the reason why slavery and racial inequality, like racial discrimin legal racial discrimination was wrong was because each individual uh, had owned themselves. So he believed in property rights like this. I'm my own property. And if I'm my own property, then no government can impose, you know, how much I should work for, how much I shouldn't work for. You know, I'm free. I own myself. It's private property. I'm private property. And you have no right to force this, this person because I am my own um, possession. Okay. And so extending out from that, he said, he thought, yeah, profit, property, property rights. That's, it's the central feature uh, that is required in order to free people. But if you have this notion that an individual is the property of a collective, then you have no grounds to oppose injustice and inequality because the right of the individual means nothing. Like in the final analysis, it's the, it's the, he's the property, she's the property of the collective and the collective good is what's essential here. And so he, he kind of makes this case that only in countries where you had a constitution where the rights of individuals were guaranteed, could you have a civil rights movement that affected the freedom of slaves and that could affect a civil rights movement like we saw in the 1960s that saw African-Americans make such you know, tremendous strides in such a short period of time. And he, he, one of the interesting things too, just as an aside, is he, he remarked on how in all of human history, there has rarely if ever been a group of people who have made so much social progress in such a short period of time. Then black America, he said, it's, 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 it's unheard of. Like in all of human history, he said, it's remarkable. And he said, the challenge is not, you know, continuing that it's, it's getting the mass of African-American people to enjoy that. So it's just not proportionate to the whole community. So you've got members of African-American community just doing so extraordinarily well in such a short space of time, historically, right. To an 150 years of time ascend from abject right. slavery to the right. highest heights of governmental leadership. That's astounding. Like that's remarkable. Um, I guess you have to look back to the book of Exodus to find that happening, you know, in Joseph, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Even though he came pre-slave days, but um, yeah, so I just wanted to mention that, like, because I, I like what you're saying in regards to the Constitution, like, and, and the Bill of Rights saying, hey, guys, this is what we need to live up to. This is our founding documents. These are the principles that are supposed to guide our nations. And, and this is not what we're, this is, we're not living up to this. And this is compared to people who would say, ah. That, that would that would come from a whole different direction than what you're saying right so i would say so i i, I would add to that right so that's why um king martin luther king jr's last speech is so fascinating to me um one because he is he's giving it he he gives this speech the day before he's assassinated yeah um and you can you know it's easy to tell this story with hindsight but there are the the way he ends that speech suggests to me that he knew his time was limited he it felt like he just knew like it's about over for me what um, private threats you know like who knows right like yeah, what private right. threats he was receiving yeah, what relationships sure. he saw breaking down right right but but and and so you know cuz he you know he ends like i don't fear any man 
because my eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. Like that's the last line of the, the, the speech. And then he sits down. But what, what one thing that he says in this, in the speech early on um, is that, you know, he says, all we're saying to America is be true to what is written on the paper. Like that yeah. to me is the, that is the message. Like, you yeah. it, it's hard to it's hard to read the declaration the, the declaration of independence and go ugh like that doesn't make yeah. like that it's hard it's to true. do that. um yeah. but what and so what america has been since it put pen to paper and and you know those guys did that was it's been an experiment on like whether or not those principles are actuated like are 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 actuatable like can we do can can this be like a living experience and that's been the fight in america like from 1776 on i mean before but like once they wrote that forward it's been like how how can we live this like how can we live and you and there just been moments of like pure disruption uh but but that disruption speaks to uh and i'm not trying to say that uh like the declaration of independence is inspired or anything i'm not i'm not trying to say right. like god wrote it but what i'm saying is that like when we look at mo we we can look at disparities we can look at injustices in the country and as a uh, as a like a measuring stick we can look and go like is this a violation uh, like mm-hmm. of that and i think that's what you know uh, leaders like king i mean it goes back to you know, i don't like david walker like you know david walker's appeal like a lot of the freedom fighters over the course of american history would appeal to the declaration and they would just say yeah. look this you are being inconsistent with this like you are not right. speaking right uh, you're 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 lived the way you're living it out is not in yeah. keeping with that and but, um, uh, yeah, that, that's world, different. Yeah. That's that's different than saying we need to burn it because there's something inherently right. wrong with it. That's what that's what right. I'm saying. Yeah, it's funny because I really take a take issue with this whole idea. I feel I find it to be very self righteous and very patronizing. This idea that you know, if individuals of the past had practiced behaviors that we would now condemn as immoral, then they couldn't have been worthy historical figures right like that so if george washington owned slaves he couldn't be someone worth honoring because of that particular evil that he had indulged in in the past the reason why i find this condescending and a little self-righteous is because it it supposes like the moral perfection of the individual making the judgment and it's a judgment that i i feel is without context right so it's like um so if you look at the whole history of the human race you see wherever people can they do discriminate. It's just the way that it goes. So, so anyone, anytime in any continent, you know, whether it's, it's Native American peoples, like the Cheyenne in Texas and West Texas, they utterly and completely dispossessed, oppressed, and discriminated against every other Indian tribe. It just, it just happened. It's not in doubt. There's no, like, confusion, historically speaking. You know, the Lakota Sioux warriors of the, of the plains, they were powerful warriors who did what they could to to push the Cheyenne out of the Black Hills, right? Like that might, or just push other Indians off their property. So I'm not going to say too much because I'll show my, my historical ignorance. But what I'm not ignorant about is, is just the, the basic fact of history where Chinese people oppress Chinese and other people groups, the Mongolians and whatever. And it's just, it's just the nature of humanity. And then you see nations beginning to shift 
and change, I would contend, in the wake of the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment, right? So, so you see this kind of birth in governments of biblical ethics where individual people are made in the image of God and have certain rights because of that fact. And they're beginning to be, individuals are beginning to be protected by law, which then opens this discussion about, hey, slavery, like what's up with this stuff? Like this is a historic evil that has been everywhere, right? And so then you, you see like the United States government that's rising out of all of this stuff, you know, this, this, this tyranny of the slavery of, of the ancient past, which is just normal. It's just common. By the way, I'm reading a book right now called Dominion and this historian named Tom Holland, he's an English historian and he's really highly respected in the historian community if there is such a thing. Um, and he's talking about how the, the more he becomes acquainted with classical cultures, the more he realizes how different he is from them, period, categorically. Because there's no such thing as sympathizing with the weak and caring for the downtrodden in Rome. Like, it just doesn't exist. That, that world did not exist, except for, like, within Jewish culture, you know, in the Jewish literature of the Old Testament. But rarely in all of human history do you ever see the ethics and the values that we espouse as a society, as a Western civilization. You just don't see those, those, those qualities, those values. And so you see America being birthed out of all the... the madness of the past and some of its founders some of its you know were imperfect and I, I just kind of sense a little bit of I don't know naiveness in people's judgments of them now I'm not saying that you should have like some full-on confederate slave trading guy like with a statue and being honored I, that's a whole different discussion to me but I'm just talking okay. about like the founding fathers you know who okay they had certain you know evils and and in their lives or whatever they made certain moral mistakes so did martin luther king jr by the way you know right, <laughs> like right. careful historical analysis shows some infidelity in his marriage and all kinds of, you know a couple unscrupulous decisions but this doesn't this doesn't take away from the essence of the man and how he was used how providence used him to affect a greater good for civilization yeah. for society you know i was reading um i was reading uh the book in the book education with, with my family the other day um because my son wanted to, he wants to study that one story in Judges that's like super problematic, man. Like uh, yeah. about the pre, yeah, you know the story I'm referring to. The guy so, when he said he pledges that. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Door. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I went and I was reading the chapter on Bible biographies in education, just trying to like. Uh, because I believe the Bible, the, the Bible is beautiful to me because of its nuance and it's, um, I think there's like stuff, there's humor, there's irony. The Bible is just so, it's rich, but it's often like dumbed down, like its richness is discounted. And I think that's where we get into trouble. So like, we don't know what to do with the story in there that's negative because we think that if it's negative in the Bible, then somehow God is sanctioning it. This is getting to your point, right? But yeah. that like, that's making a mistake because like, what she says in the book education is that we have the closest to truth in Bible biographies because the author can read the hearts of the individuals, right? Like it, it can right. really, it can penetrate to the, the essence of the person in a, in a way that like normal biography can't do it. Now, yeah. with the, how that speaks to, if in my mind, how it speaks to the point you were making is that there, there's a, there's a mistake that some people read history through where we're on this inherently unavoidable uh march of progress forward 
right? right? And so that gives you the will, that gives many the will to demonize historical figures because they uh, presume because they live after them that they are automatically more moral <laughs> than them, right? Totally. That's, that, and that's a mistake. Wow. Like that's, that's a mistake. Bro, so, C.S. Lewis, I'm just going to interject here. Yeah, C.S. Yeah. Lewis mm -hmm. calls that, C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. Oh yeah, that's so good. I like that. I like that. that that's good. That's good. And so, um, and, and the flip side of the coin, the mistake that is made is that because this figure has, um, has reached the, uh, in some people's minds, because this figure has reached the level of hero, that we can't acknowledge their frailty as a human yeah. being. Yeah. Right. So it's just like, no, they were perfect because they're a hero. And if they weren't perfect, then they can't be a hero, right? And oh, so wow. like, there's this weird hero worship that happens with yeah. historical figures. As allowed to, as, a, as, as, as opposed to just letting them be, like right. who they were. And then Brother. learning, wow. learning yeah. what you can from them, and then yep. disregarding what you need to, so we, and, and, and the mistake, what I love about, to bring it to the, po the point I was making about the Bible, what I love mm -hmm. about the Bible is the, if the Bible treated if the Bible was like us, we would not know about Bathsheba. Yes. We wouldn't know about it. Totally. Because God forbid we learn about Bathsheba, then we can't learn anything from David anymore because he made this mistake. Yeah. But the Bible doesn't do that because there is room for human frailty. I'm not saying the Bible uh, looks away from it. I'm not saying it um, celebrates it. But to, no. to disregard the frailty, like Abraham, we cannot look at Abraham as the father of the faithful, right? Romans picks him up like, look, this is an example of faith. But Hagar's in there. Hagar's oh, in the story. Yeah. So when he goes down to Egypt, they, yeah, that's what I was about to say, right? So he right. goes down and he fully lies. So like, so do we have to like throw Abraham out? Like, I don't think that's the move. But we need to be honest about who Abraham is. And that honesty actually can get us further than this the games that either side plays where you ignore yes. the faults or you play up the faults in order to demonize the person because like you said uh. and then it goes back to that parable right like if i do that to an individual that's suggesting that i have reached translatability and that's not true uh. and you know it's funny because how do you build like it's easy to sit as a beneficiary of the society someone else has built and judge that person like that's very easy it's very difficult to build a civilization and i think this is something that like people were i just don't think that we as modern citizens understand what we are like i think i think we're very unaware of ourselves like like what suffering what struggle did i grow up under now don't get i'm not minimizing anyone's real genuine struggle like like in america there are real people who've had horrific struggles in the modern era i get that like i'm not minimizing that but i'm talking about in mass like as yeah. a society like as a as a corporate entity like we in the west and i don't want to make this like anyway so you'll see you'll get the point like we in the west if you take the like we have homeless people that are overweight okay okay so this is okay. just use that as just like a metaphor Okay. For the, the, the West, right? So whatever your struggle, whatever you're suffering, it's highly unlikely that you're going to starve to death. It's highly unlikely that someone won't provide you a shirt to wear, right? Like there, there are people who suffer in this world presently 
under conditions that, that we could not fathom that would break us psychologically, emotionally real quick. And, you know, you, you look at the ancient past, you know, in the world that the, the founders of the United States of America, the, 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 the individuals who kind of reformed England and brought it to the point where you had English common law and all the freedoms and, and rights that were guaranteed under that kind of system of law. Um, th these are people who, man, they, they lived in, in very unaccommodating circumstances and situations and the fight and the struggle of their lives was, was so taxing and so trying. I just don't think we can really relate to that. Like what these people had to endure in order to affect the changes that we now benefit from, you know, if you, and I think this is once again, highlighted by the fact of, of ancient culture, you know, you, you don't see Romans like apologizing, you know, like in Roman society, Greek classical society, you don't see, you know, any great civilization of the past. You don't see like, any sympathy for the weak, any, like, they don't even blink an eye at cruelty. You know, it's just, it's just this complete acceptance that certain people are lesser. That's just the way that it will be in, in, in the tribal it's, warfare it's of the fate. Native it's Americans. It's oh, fate. it's fate. It's what it right. is. It's in the Indian, um, in, in Hindu religion, in India, the whole caste system and mm -hmm. the idea that even to help another person who's suffering is fighting against karma you just have a world of cruelty and to change that world to give us what we have now would have taken an enormous amount of will and sacrifice and commitment and pain and suffering. And so somebody who spent decades of their lives risking everything for their principles, their beliefs, their values to create a freer and better world. Well, that person had some moral evils. So let's just assume that we're better than them. When if we lived in the same time frame and it was, you know, we probably wouldn't have a, a quarter of their resolve um, to do what they did. So I'm not saying you or I or any good people yeah, no, out there. I'm no, no, saying no, in no. general as a society. And I was just going to, so this is like my summary point in, in that regard. Like, so yeah, anyways, I, that's all, that's all I'll say. <laughs> no, I was going to, I was just going to add to that. Like, I think, I think we overestimate our moral courage. Yes. Um, and, yes. and it's, and it is easy to remark upon a, a time in which you you didn't live you know I, and and or yes. you, uh, and, and and i think but i but i think if we were to do some introspection uh some honest if we'd examine ourselves as as scripture calls i think we would see where we would stand in any given moral moment i just think yes. it's easier to uh with hindsight look back on the past than to do present introspection i would say that yeah. i um but I, I i also think it's interesting the function so i'm reading through abraham heschel's book on the prophets right okay. now and it's an incredible book like it's it's fascinating some of the arguments he makes are really fascinating and um one thing he says he contrasts the hebraic the hebrew like old testament scriptures he contrasts it with like greek civilization and he makes this really interesting argument about the nature of justice and how, um, and, and I don't want to stumble. He, he, he's more well-read, so he dealt with the Greek stuff in a way that I can't. But one, the point that he ultimately makes is he says that what makes the prophets unique is that they were commissioned, like by God, like they, the, to speak on behalf of the orphan and the widow, but they weren't commissioned by the orphan and the widow. 
So there's like this third party observer who like sends them to like go talk on behalf of this group. And he says that he says that a prudent man will a prudent man knows to mind his business. Right. And so he's really saying that the prophets were imprudent. Like they didn't know better. Like they were All like, right. listen, look over there. That's a problem. Like they didn't know like not to do that. And he, and he <laughs> says like that, that is yeah. a development in history where That's it's cool. just like these people come down from the, the mountains or the hills or whatever. And they go, you should do better. You should do stop doing that. Like the, that kind of, yes. and, they, and I'm, I'm, yeah. you, you understand the point that I'm making. Yeah, so like good. what, what, what I think. And so he, he's talking about the, the, the nature of justice when he discusses this. And so that gets back to our, like, our earlier discussion about like, when people are doing social justice, he, Heschel comments on a justice, he makes this, con not this contrast, but he talks about the difference between righteousness and justice. And if I have it right, justice right. is the form and righteousness is the substance or the content. And he talks about a law without righteousness and how injustice is an inevitability. Right. Because when wow. righteousness is not a part of that law. So now if yeah. you if you want to work and do social justice, it has to be in light of righteousness. It has to. It cannot be anything short of that because if it's just talking about the form of justice yes. and injustice, then it's not going to get you where you want to go, right? And so then that right that discussion of righteousness brings us back to the gospel. And that's yeah. why when you look at the prophets a lot of their work was internal, right? God is like mm -hmm. Micah is talking about what God requires of you. That's an inter yeah. that, that's internal. Now it yeah. has an external outworking. It, it yeah. has this. So like you said, right? Adventists got in boats and they went down the Mississippi. That was an external behavior. That was a, a thing that they were doing. But I believe what was driving that was uh, an internal work of trying to internalize the, the law of God, like the new yeah. covenant at work is what drove that action, which is why governmental appeal, while they could say the government was messing up here, like you should do better, this is a messed up program. Ultimately what they were doing though, is they were putting foot to ground and they were working. And, mm -hmm. and I, think it, I think it's not social justice work, it's not genuine justice work if all you're doing is lambasting historical figures. That's really the point that I was making. Because that's yeah, not what exactly. the prophets were doing. While they spoke to the king, they also said, listen, break bread for the, like they, they talked to everybody in a way where they were, the, the substance was there. And I just would warn anybody who was passionate about this to make sure that the substance is there, that love is motivating and that it's driving it. Because without it, then you just become a tinkling, a, a sounding symbol. Right. That's a, right. A, a noise. Yes. Yes. Well, 100%. You know, there's a lot of parents who do a lot for their kids and they have careers, they have jobs, they provide an education for their kids, they provide a good environment for their children in a, in a house and in a neighborhood or whatever. And the kids grow up and overlook all of that and then find, you know, exploit these faults of their parents as a way, as a means to, to justify a rebellion against them. Right. right. I think this happens yeah. on a societal level as well. I think this is what we're seeing to some degree, to some extent, like in America, wholesale, not so much as a particular part of the Black Lives Matter movement. I think it's in there. It's in the, it's part of the movement. But just as an, as America itself, I've seen this happen on a societal level where people just so easily dismiss the great figures of the past because of their flaws and faults. 
that uh, they don't realize the greatness of those people and the monumental sacrifices. And a, a good example of it, like of how we should judge, I think the past is, I, I, I think I said this to you last time we talked after we were done recording, well, I'm reading a book. I just finished listening to a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Abraham. No, what was his name? Victor Frankel. And the first third of the book is unreal. The second two thirds is okay. In the second two thirds, he talks about his psychiatric approach oh. to like his, his, his philosophy of psychiatry. I think he was a psychiatrist and a neurologist at the same time. And he, he talks about his experience in the first third of the book in Auschwitz. And it's just so interesting, man, like his arrival, the treatment of the prisoners, what they endured, the sicknesses, the living conditions, the bugs, the lice, the fleas, the not washing for years. It's unbelievable. Living in the fecal matter of others for months and years. It's, it's so horrible. Like you just, Oh, you can't believe that human beings could endure what these Jews endured. Anyways, and then he gives little like commentaries on it, like from a psychiatric standpoint. Right. Okay. And how he survived and how they survived and, and how in his, his premises, it was men. It was, it was those who sought meaning in their suffering that survived or, or had the most, you know, uh, they, they were the ones who could, if they didn't physically survive and live, they survived. They, they kept okay. it together psychologically, emotionally, because okay. they could, they could find meaning in their circumstances and, as soon as they lost meaning, they're finished. And so he, he describes certain Nazis, like prison guards, who wouldn't be cruel. And in particular, there was a guy who was the captain of, their, of Auschwitz when it was taken over by the Allied forces. And they never understood, the Jews would never understand why doesn't he kill any of them and why doesn't he abuse any of them. He was very kind of reclusive and stayed away from them um and they just suppose it's because he just didn't care what was discovered after that like lots of the jews knew this but they couldn't tell the rest of them because they didn't have the they didn't want the word to get out but he was secretly buying medicine for them buying clothing for them oh. and smuggling it into the camp like secretly through certain of the jewish physicians and they had to keep it total secret because then he could get in trouble for being right. kind to them and then there were other prison guards who were really kind and, and would give them food and sneak them stuff and, and kind of protect them by getting them into certain work details if they were going to die to kind of save them. And he said there would, there would be these individuals actively pursuing their good. And then there would be certain Jews that would be assigned positions of privilege over them that would become the cruelest and the harshest and the worst. Mm. And, and he talked about how they as a, as a Jewish community there in the prisons how they viewed these certain Nazis and how their esteem for them was even greater than it could have been for one another. Because these are people who came from an environment where they were supposed to be cruel to you, but okay. they weren't, they weren't. So they were breaking ranks in order to be good and decent towards you. But then these uh, Jewish uh, friends of theirs or associates of theirs would be put in positions of power and be even crueler. And he talked about how the esteem for them would be even lower because they, they were doing this to people who were in the same situation as them. Yeah. And so he talks about how you value other people and how you judge them and how the circumstances that they come from affects the way you should perceive their actions and their behaviors. Right. So I think this is a lens through which you could view the past where it's like those Nazi soldiers or those prison camp soldiers, whether they were Nazis or not, you know, they most of them were, some were not, 
like as far as affiliated with that political party. But the point is, is that all the influences around them were telling them, be cruel to Jews. So they weren't cruel to Jews. So you wouldn't judge that, that act the same way you judge my act towards Jewish people. Like how do I, how does Matt Parra in 2020 treat Jewish people? What am I the product of? What is my environment telling me to think about Jewish people? You know, like it's all influences are telling me be a decent person to mm -hmm. Jews, right? It's, it's, that's the culture I was birthed out of. But if the circumstances you were being birthed out of was, were ones where slavery was the accepted norm and you fought against it, you know, you fought against the wholesale slavery of other people. Yeah. Um, you know, whether you had a slave that you owned or not, like that, it just gives you context through which you judge the person's actions. And anyways, we're getting off into this particular subject no. of the way we view the past, but I think there's something to it. And I think it's, I think it's important because you, you, this is no excuse to me. This is no excuse for just being complacent in the present and right. saying, well, there was worse injustice in, justice in the past, so we don't deal with it now. Right, I think right. it's just, it's just understanding that it's almost like I'm just fighting against this whole, like I was, I was raised in the suburbs. I, I went to the mall all the time and I think I'm better than George Washington. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. No, I, I think um, just to cap it, like I think I thought, and I think this side street was important because I think the way one reads the past has a bearing on their actions in the present and vice versa. Um, and one yeah. and and both and 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 they can work for a shroud in in either direction like one can they can function as scales in either direction right like I, I think they have to be read in tandem i think they have to be understood i don't think we need to understand ourselves in the present as exclusively cut off from the past i think that's a mistake i think mm -hmm. we're very much uh, a part of the ongoing story of human history i think it's important yeah. to see yourself like that and then to understand that you know it and I, I, look, man, I'm not there. I, I almost said the sentence and I already thought about like some of the people that may hear this and, and balk at what they're saying, but they would have, I hope they heard all this stuff we said before. I think the grace that you desire should be to some degree afforded. That doesn't dismiss bad actions, right? You know, God fascinates me, man, because like God can look at us in the, in the condition we are and it not be grounds for wholesale dismissal of us. And yet still, he, do, he never gives us permission to continue to be the wretches yeah. that we are. That's good. And I just, I, I, I think if, if we could just learn to see each other the way Jesus saw us, we yeah. uh, sees us, we'd be in a better shape. You know, earlier in the conversation, you were mentioning something in scripture. I think when you were commenting on the book of Galatians and Peter, and the racial prejudice he was practicing in his interactions with the non-Jews and how he wouldn't sit with them and eat with them. And Paul just like tells him off, you know, to his face. Mm. Like that demonstrates to me that a truly converted man who has been filled with the Holy Ghost can still carry uh, prejudices that are not acceptable oh, okay. to God. Okay. Yeah, no, and I've been hearing a lot in the public debate about, well, if someone's truly converted, they can't be racist. And I think, well, what about Galatians 1? Right. Like, it doesn't mean that, that, that Peter was a wholesale racist. It just means right. he was consenting to prejudices that he shouldn't have been consenting to. You know, we don't know his heart and to what degree he despised or did not despise Gentile believers, but we just know he wasn't eating with them. So he was accommodating a prejudice and he was supporting it with his actions and his, you know, compliance to it. And that wasn't making God happy. So 
Paul like tells him, you know, what's up. And so this to me exhibits, this is a case in point of how decent people, good people who are God's chosen can practice behavior that he's unhappy, that God's unhappy with. And I feel like as Adventist Christians, something that like we have to acknowledge is that we have on many occasions preached a crossless gospel and a gospel that does not require you to separate yourself from your first identity, your birth condition, and now wholly judge based on God's word. Like if I'm, that, that allows for the flesh, that allows for some, like I've always said as an Adventist evangelist, one of the reasons why people don't accept fundamental truth is because they haven't first accepted the most fundamental truth. And that is that they will no longer see as they see. They will only see as God sees. They'll replace their own eyes with God's eyes and God's eyes are in scripture. Mm-hmm. So the word of God becomes like what they judge, how they judge. It's how they see. And that requires basically me saying, everyone saying, uh, you know, let the wicked man forsake his thoughts and the unrighteous man his ways, you know? So my ways are done. My thoughts are done. I replace mm-hmm. them with the word of God and that's it. And I think when people are converted to Christianity, just kind of like through, I want to be able to live forever and be free from a couple of diseases. So let me pray to God. I'm a Christian now. I'm going to live forever. Yeah. Well, you haven't been changed on an, on a basic, on a core level. You're not born again. You're not dead to tears. So your, your Christian conversion is not based on dying to everything you were and hating your own life, your own life. Right. Right. Now, of course you're going to have people who have racial prejudice and all kinds of other undue prejudices in the church. If entry into the church required no crucifixion of self, (laughs) self self-denial, self-sacrifice, and following after Jesus. So we always wonder, like, how could, like, Christians do such bad things over the course of Christian history? And we never stop to acknowledge the obvious. It's because they weren't converted. Right, right. It was just external compliance to what was normal in that time. Like, you know, so your army was conquered by a Christian army, so we're all Christians now. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. You know, so we yeah. do that in our evangelism today. We we baptize yeah. anyone just because it makes us look good and feel good because our church is growing and those people aren't converted. And of course there's gonna be racism in the church because and that's a bit we're, and we're plagued a bit by like Western thinking that really focuses on that over accentuates the individual. I mean you think about well, I don't know, like if you look at modern thought, Descartes and like they were all chasing this ego, this I, like what is the ego composed of? Um, I think that when you look at scripture, there you, you, it's, it's communal. It's, it's not, the, it isn't about the individual. Um, salvation uh, is about, it, it, it's, I'm trying to figure, I'm like, I'm really trying to find the words, but salvation is, is there's a communal outcome there's a communal benefit to salvation. So the thing about the new earth, right? And like how it's described, it's not a bunch of individuals. Like they're all connected to each other. Ellen White speaks of the great web of humanity. It's racism is one mode of trying to deny one's place in the great web of humanity. That's That's what it does. And it etches out a space for maybe some people that look like me, but it's really, racism is about me. Like it's about when, when an individual is racist, it, it's, it's, about an, it's, about indiv- it's about individual identity. Now they use others in order to verify that identity, uh, but it's about me. 
what that's why conversion out of racism is the opening of the heart like fully to the other it's the self sacrificial um it's it's love it's the denial of self like that's what that's what so so when we racism doesn't make me mad anymore as it as it makes especially within christians because like Mm -hmm. i'm gonna be honest like over the last few weeks i've had conversations with christians that deeply disturbed me because I wonder to myself when they're over, how are we worshiping the same Jesus? Like, I don't even get the comment, like, I don't get how we can both claim the name of Jesus. I don't get it. Because Jesus, when you look at Jesus walking around, I mean, his, his interaction with the Samaritans to me is just so telling to like what his expectation of is of his disciples right and you can translate the principles of the jewish and samaritan relationship into other modern day inter-ethnic interactions like you can do that right and so we see that jesus didn't deny he didn't he he didn't do this color blindness like i don't see samaritans i don't know a samaritan he didn't do that that's ridiculous he he knew that that woman at the well was a samaritan but it didn't discount her value in his eyes and he was trying to train his disciples to see in the same way to me like you 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 hit it on the head like the demands at accepting jesus now are so slight that really as long as i know that i can escape hellfire i know that i'm saved and that is such a low bar to set before a Christian that if that's the bar they jumped, I don't understand why we're upset at them acting the way that they act, if that makes yeah. sense. I don't even no, judge them. That's a really good point. Yeah, tactic. Hey, yeah, so what, how would you define racism in general? Because like, I think I, I, would, I would personally see that there's a difference between preference. Like this is, a, this is something I think every person should talk about. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes the terms are not clear and are not defined when people use them. And, and especially like in our world today, okay. the meaning of racism is changing. And a lot of people would just simply, you know, like it's, it, the term is, so, is being so usely, loosely used or used so loosely that it's, yeah. it's going to end up meaning nothing. Yeah. Because I okay. think what will end up happening is people are going to become so annoyed and frustrated at the loose use of the term that it's going to become meaningless and, 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 and it's ended up going to end up, I, I hope not, but it may end up affecting there being more racists. You know, so like it, if so, no, it will, it will. And yeah, yeah go ahead. I know if someone, if someone's a racist because of their political persuasion, you know, if you label say, a, like I'm not a Republican by the way, just so everyone knows, but if, if you label someone a Republican, Republicans are racist. Right. Or if you believe in, pro-life you're racist or if you believe in a small government you know free market economy you're racist or this policy is inherently racist but it doesn't actually call for any discrimination on the basis of race now as soon as you kind of start to play that game it's like wah like uh yeah you you end up you end up indicting people who you shouldn't indict and making enemies out of possible friends okay um and it's like okay so you're gonna it's like if a kid is raised in a family and they get spanked for nothing well, then they end up behaving badly because they're going to get spanked anyways, you know? Okay. It's the same okay. thing for like a black American who, let's say there's a person in the inner city who unfortunately is treated like a criminal when they're not, they can start to think to themselves, hey, wait a second, like if I'm going to be treated like a criminal and I'm I not, I might as well be. So I think people feel that on all sides. As soon as you're falsely indicted for something that you're not or that something that you're not practicing, maybe you are, you, you kind of oh. think, well, 
yeah, well, if that's how you're going to treat me, well, then, yeah, this is how I'll act. Or it may create enemies where there could be friends. So, like, racism, what, do you, what comments, what thoughts do you have? What is it? Yeah, yeah. What, yeah, what is so, the evil of race? What is racism in its, like, truest sense, evil sense? That's right. So let me, so, um, again, referring to that book, uh, you know, The Prophets, it says that justice, there's a dual-sidedness. There's a, the, uh, the justice is like a coin. And it, it has a claim to rights and it has a, a, a like a demand of a, a of duty, right? To this, mm -hmm. to the other, like that's, it's like a two-tiered thing, like justices. And so yeah. what I would say, to, I'm just to use that as a springboard, I would say racism is a denial of one's duty to the other uh, or, or it's a devaluing of another person or it's a belief that they aren't warranted uh, you know, their, their basic claim, uh, the, uh, to the rights based on like the, the, the basic human dignity that they have based on the color of their skin. I think that's what racism is. It's a denial that we are alike. It's, yes. uh, and based on the, the, the color of your skin, you're not like me, you're inferior to me based on what you look like. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. That's like a classic definition. Like that's the, it's just crazy how the world is, is functioning right now. Like in regards to, and I said something, I had this girl just on social media. I couldn't believe it. I made a comment on a friend. He's a black friend from England. He's from the UK. And if, if our listeners don't know, African-Americans are very different than English, uh, African English, <laughs> like culturally, socially, it's just a different world. Yeah. It's just a total, I really like, like the, the Adventist black black Adventist culture in England is really cool, man. Like I, you know, they have that whole like fancy talk, you know, they sound like very British and very posh. And to me, to my ears, you know, it's like very British, maybe to theirs it's not, but um, yeah, it's just such a cool culture. That whole West, a lot of black Adventists in England are from the West Indies, mm -hmm. some from Africa, good food, warm culture, very friendly, but very refined, that English kind of, to an American anyways. So, um, yeah, man, where was I going with this? What was I saying? I lost my the, place. No, it's good. The classical definition of racism. Yeah. You said you were on Facebook and yeah, I'm on Facebook and a friend's thread from England. And he's like, and I said something to the effect of like, I just made an abortion comment. I wasn't hijacking the conversation. I was just saying, Hey, listen, it would be like, like I wasn't using that the springboard of the conversation to just kind of go on my own tirade i just said hey listen i i just made the point i think that as a pro-life advocate the black community should be as fired up about the abortion clinics that are set up in their neighborhoods because margaret sanger that and and, and those around her the, the whole abortion the genesis of, of abortion rights in america was based on racism like 100 percent. like that's a historical fact like no nobody denies that uh, except for someone who's unfamiliar with the facts of the yeah, situation. Right, right. And uh, as a way to decrease the number of black people in America and, and other people who were deemed less than human, the whole eugenics movement was born. And this idea of, of killing people before they were born uh, and limiting their populations, that's the whole point of, mm -hmm. of abortion that's a big genesis of abortion rights and so um so where are the most abortion clinics they're not like in white neighborhoods some so you know you get poor white neighborhoods yeah sure 
because it's a business, abortion is a business and there's money to be made out of it. But by and large, I mean, per capita, the majority of children aborted in America are brown and black skinned babies. And um, it's, it's tragic. Now, I just made that point. I said, hey, listen, I, I, I hope the black community can rally to the defense of unborn babies. It was an appropriate statement, not because it was inappropriate, but it was a, a, a badly, a poorly timed statement. And there was this mm-hmm. white girl from America who just went crazy, like, you racist, you're a racist. And she just went on this whole tirade, like, I'm going to tell everyone that you know you're a racist. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, and I looked at her profile. She's like got all white friends and she's from a white neighborhood. You know, it's like, I was just, I found it so strange. Like I, I grew up in a black and brown community. So my whole life, I'm from my half of my family's brown. And I thought, isn't this interesting that this girl feels like it's basically, it was basically her calling me a racist was basically saying, I disagree with you. Oh, I, yeah. That's basically what it meant. It meant, I disagree with you. Yeah. So, that, so you're, this is what you are because I disagree with you. And I thought, as soon as language is, is used that way, and as soon as terms no longer carry, you know, meaning, because nothing I said was, was definitionally racist, like not at all. It was just, a, it was a poorly timed thing for sure. But I, I hadn't even, by the way, at that time when I, when I wrote it, I hadn't watched the George. But she Ford doesn't, video. she doesn't know you. She doesn't know no, she who you are. No, she had no y'all, y'all, y'all just had a, met, a mutual friend in the guy from England. That's right. That's oh. right. And it was almost like she was trying to show off for the, for the black people because it's all black people on the thread. And I was like the only white guy. He and I interact on regular basis. I highly respect his thinking and his perspectives and vice versa. I think the, the respect is mutual. And so I just felt free. Like I'm going to say this thing. And his post was something about abortion and, and protesting and this and that. And I was like, yeah, I think more black Americans should protest abortion because by and large, it's black people being aborted. And how many millions of black people would exist that don't exist had it not been for the abortion clinics in their neighborhoods. And perhaps, um, and obviously the, then we had conversations about what's led to that. And I said, no, of course. And I was like, this is my point. Exactly. So let's fix what needs to be fixed in order to end abortion in, in black neighborhoods so that millions of black babies aren't being unnecessarily uh, destroyed. Anyway, so yeah, it was just, it was just, I'm just using this as an example of somebody who mm-hmm. just flew off the handle simply because other people disagreed with them. And I'm just so, the whole like Nazi thing too, man, the way people are using the term Nazi. And once again, I'm not a Republican and I didn't vote for Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but at the same time, man, I, I watch what's happening in the news about Donald Trump and being a media, just being a Nazi and a white supremacist. Look, I don't know if the guy's a racist on a personal level, but I know what the Nazis did in Germany. And as far as like what Donald Trump has turned out to be, he's not very totalitarian in much of what he does. His rhetoric is loud and he says obnoxious things. As far as policy prescriptions and how he's interacting with states amongst the corona crisis, you know, like it's, it's hardly totalitarian, man. Like, I would say what, I was going to say one, so the discussion around him becomes, here's a mistake that I think we make sometimes. Yes, sure. Where we build... This is what we do. This is a mistake. And it's kind so like, there was, a, I was taking this philosophy religion class in, my, in, in undergrad, and uh, my professor... Uh, Donna Warren, who I love to death, like we're still friends to this day. She said, um, like, when you're in the throes of this debate and, and um, uh, like a moral debate of philosoph- philosophically, what a lot of young burgeoning philosophers tend to do 
is they just level the the Nazi gun. Like the quickest way right. to end a moral debate is to say either the idea is not like Nazi Nazism or the person uh, saying the idea is a Nazi and and it's over right. right? So it's an easily like we we run it's a it's an easily run play. It's um, you run to the Nazi I, weapon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I think is happening uh, in America is something with and and what we do is we build moral monsters and then we kill the moral monster in order to convince ourselves we're better than we are yeah. right and so there are easy moral monsters like hitler right like right. no one was as bad as hitler so like as long as I'm not as bad as Hitler, like I'm doing okay. So then when I'm in the throes of a debate, the easiest way to deal with a person is just to be, oh, like you're being like Hitler. Cause like, I mean, how do you come back from right. that? Like, what do you do with that, right? So <laughs> what, I, what, what, what I find interesting about Trump is that Trump, one thing, I don't, I don't know where his heart is, but he speaks a language. He is, there are people that I know that are racist that are at home with him. And the, right. the one fault that I have with Trump, and this would be able to really make me clear on who he is, is that yes. I, wish he, I wish he was clear with language that it would, where he would be able to <laughs> express himself in a way where those people weren't at home with him. Because right. then I could be like, he just, right. and so, so it, we, the story might be told that ultimately this dude was just a politician. And he saw like, I, ha I can access a certain number of people by saying yes. this thing. Because right. a lot of the stuff that he said on July 4th in that speech was just like, uh, not as well thought out as you would have hoped for a president. But like, I think it's because he's playing to a base. And so, you know, is, I, is he a politician? Is he racist? I don't even want to do that anymore. I think what we do, what we need to do is just deal with racism. And the way we yeah. deal with it is by really actually listening. And so like, I, I, the, the reason the, your story reminded me of someone, I won't say her name, she's my friend. And, and uh, I knew her in Wisconsin. And she posted this meme, it had gone viral and other people posted it, she posted it. And it was of this young white guy who was killed at the hands of police. I think I told you this story, I may not have told you this story. Yeah, I think it was um, it the guy that was suffocated because of the dude who yeah, got right. his Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, his, yeah, yeah. I don't remember for twelve minutes or something. Yeah. So now I don't remember yeah. if, if this was recorded anyway. But the as we discussed it, as we discussed this thing, and she said that, and the, the initial it made me mad that she put it up, and then I I responded not in anger, but I wrote this response, and then she private messaged me, and we started to talk, and mm -hmm. so eventually we were able to talk through some things, and I expressed to her the historical vantage point that many black people are speaking from that makes them frustrated in this present moment. And I told her some things to look up and she had never heard of those things. Now, the point I'm making of when I bring this story up is if I would have just shouted her down in public, like, oh, I thought you, you know, I thought you were better than this, you're a racist, then yeah. I would have never come to know that she didn't know a lot of what I knew, right? Which was informing her position. And once she knew better, she wrote to me, she said, I had no idea this needs to be remedied where a lot of young white people need to be taught a more full picture of history because the history that many of them are working from is limited. 
right? But that that comes through conversation. Like that comes through, and I think that that ready to go move, like, oh, you're a racist, you're a racist. And I don't think that's gonna get us home. I just don't think that's gonna get us where that's we need really to go. Good. Dude, I'm so into that. Like, I love what you said at the beginning of the conversation. Like, as Bible-believing Christians and as Christ followers who believe in the power of the Word of God, we have to, I think, rally around Scripture. Scripture, 2,000 years ago and before, addressed racial issues and issues of justice and equality. And that is, I think, where we as Adventists need to find our solutions. And I think that's so, so important. But, you know, it's funny because Dave Asherick has been I've been talking, I talked to him the last week and on Twitter, that's basically the position he's been taking and he's been getting smashed mm. by Adventist leaders and pastors who are basically saying, oh, you're trying to take the moral high ground by being biblical and they're trying to co-opt him into certain, you know, using certain language and, and that the precise language that they want used that supports their kind of political angle. And it's just really, really funny to see Adventists becoming not, not biblically based, but like he put up, he put up uh, a, a post that said something to the effect of, you know, it's the gospel that changes hearts and we need to call people to repentance in Jesus's name. This is the most effective thing we can do as a group. And someone showed up, they basically responded by putting a picture up of like the Ku Klux Klan worshiping. And she's like, well, what gospel, you know? And, and she was making the point that you need to restructure the government in order to ensure and guarantee uh, racial equality rather than preach the word of God to the hearts and minds of people. And mm. what, what she was saying directly opposes what you're saying in regards to conversation and, and education and understanding and, and a free exchange of ideas in order to all come to, you know, an understanding. See, um, I was I, not to cut you, but like I was yeah. with her on, I was with her on the meme, right? I think, yeah. I think Adventists need to be honest about the fact, and I'm not saying Dave was David wasn't doing this. I'm saying that, yes. but, but I'm, I'm speaking to, in this American context with Christians that I'm talking to, like Adventists need to be honest with the fact that there are alternative gospels out there and that yes. the Ku Klux Klan was a Christian organization. We need to acknowledge that. And, and, and what, what the, and that the, the really powerful part of that is that Adventists could really take their place See, well, here's, here's what's interesting. The three angels' messages, I think this is what I think we're doing wrong. And really quick. So A.T. Jones, uh, I was reading these series of Bible studies he did on the three angels' message. And I agree with his interpretation of Revelation 14. He's, he argues that the, that the three angels' messages are an unfolding of the everlasting gospel. Now, somebody mm -hmm. might go, of course. But no, you have a lot of pastors who think that, and, and I know some of them, they think that yep. there's the everlasting gospel, and, and then, then the there's the first angel's message, and yep. second and third, right? I but agree with A.T. Jo Jones 100%. Uh, 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 okay, good. A thousand, I think, when I first read it, I was like, yes, like that is it, because you see the first angel carrying the everlasting gospel, and then that angel speaks, right? It yes. says, fear God and give glory to him. Now, the reason why that's important uh, or to this discussion is because the gospel then, um, when you hear the first angel's message, which is what the pioneers were working from in the 1840s, yes. which yeah. was what allowed them to see the inherent brotherhood of everyone. They didn't stop at black skin. They saw yeah. everybody as their brothers and sisters. What enabled them to do that was the gospel. It was the unfolding yep. of the gospel.
fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship yes. him that has made everything, right? That is the message. So now what we need to acknowledge, though, is that there is another gospel that has been afoot in America mm -hmm. and in the rest of the world. In the whole world, that, that's right. Right, that has allowed for the hierarchy of humanity and for the, the, the injustice and, and abuse and oppression of the other. There has been a false gospel. Now that Paul would say is anathema, but is, it is out there. So the, what Adventists, there are some Adventists who say, preach the gospel, but as a mechanism to ignore the, the, the oppression and injustice. But I believe, and I think this is why Jones landed on the right side of the question in 1890, 1895, like he's he's consistently preaching that like you know colorism and the color line all that comes out of the human heart and the heart is at enmity with the law of god for it is not subject yep. to the law of god neither d can be like he sees all these things connecting because mm -hmm. they do connect right yeah so what what i hear uh asterisk doing is that like the only way to a common brotherhood is through the gospel jesus yep. who's the personification of the gospel who is the law unfolded was uh, brotherhood was not a struggle for him like he uh, samaritan no. greek whatever syrophoenician it didn't matter you are a child of uh, of god you are a son or daughter of abraham and i think the yeah. gospel does that i do i think it's the only thing let me to, to, yeah. to find to put a period on that point i think it is the only thing that does it i think it's the only thing that does it i agree anything it, it, else the, will fall short Ephesians 2 is very clear. Like he is the th the thing that breaks down the middle wall of partition yes, between yep, Jew yep. and Gentile. And the Gentile world, according to the Apostle Paul in that context, is anyone who's not a Jew. And so, yeah, through the flesh of Christ, through the death, burial, and resurrection, he creates a new humanity that's defined completely differently. So um, this is a powerful moment. If you want to be a Seventh-day Adventist and you want to be concerned about this, because this is an entry point for the third angel's message. This moment is an entry point. But yes, sadly, yes. because we don't know ourselves, we're chasing behind other groups and people. And it's like, well, you got to join this and you got to join. And, now, and, and I'm, I'm just like speaking as broadly as possible. But what I'm saying yes. is that like, if, if we knew who we were, if we understood historically who we were and, where, and what we were put here to do, then we have something to say to this moment that is that is uh, that has a depth to it that the world mm -hmm. needs and that has a long lasting effect that the world needs but because we don't yep. know ourselves we're chasing behind and then we're like just joining whoever you know sound and i don't let me actually let me be fair i think there are people because we don't know who we are who have this sense that injustice is afoot and they're trying their best to do something about it but God put a people on this earth to convey a final message of mercy that uh, as a part of that message of mercy says that regardless of what you look like, right? There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no the, uh, bond nor free. Like in Jesus, we are new creatures. Mm -hmm. And that message, the world is dying to hear. But Yeah, and excludes, the three angels message excludes um, racial preference because of the fact that the message is to go to every nation, king, every, tongue, yeah. people. Right. You know, one of the ironies I'm finding in the Adventist church in America right now is that there are certain left-leaning leaders, preachers, whoever, that I don't think they know that they're left-leaning in their viewpoints. I, I, don't, I think they're utterly confused about where their own view comes from, but they're basically decrying the GC for being racist and not taking a stronger stand against what's happening in America. 
but I think that they're overlooking the fact that the Adventist church globally is basically a black church. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like the general conference president is the president of the general conference, not of the United States of America. And by and large, our church is composed of Asians and Brown people in South America and Central America and Africans and Asians. I mean, you know, the white population of the Adventist church is relatively small. It's had a huge effect because Adventism was birthed out of New England and primarily had white founders, like not primarily, but just as far as like, you know, the, mm -hmm. the ones that we know of, and I'm not talking about like, um, yeah, anyway, so, right. so I just, I just found that kind of funny that, that like people are just, uh, how do I say, just, uh, we could always do things better. There's always more that can be, you know, whatever. But um, th th there are people, voices, and this is this is the point I want to get to. There are voices in America, in American Adventism, that are basically saying, like there was an article by a Spectrum magazine editor in on some website that uh, I was just being told about uh, called The Wall. It's a, it's a ministry that I know, a friend of mine, Ty Gibson, is kind of participating mm -hmm. with uh, uh, Andrews University guy, and it's called Against the Wall. And an article was posted there, or a blog was posted there by an editor of Spectrum magazine, hardly the most centrist, uh, you know, periodical in Adventism, uh, or the most Adventist, <laughs> to be very frank. Um, and uh, he's, he was basically talking about white supremacy and Adventism. And the article, bro, was so disjointed, so incoherent, like you just, you basically, I mean, it was just far out. And he was just trying to make the case that Adventism as a whole is like white, basically led by white supremacists. And yes, I'm thinking yeah, to myself, are you, I was like, what universe are you from, dude? Like how insular and small can you be, you know, can your world be? Um, it was just like, you're just regurgitating what you hear from your I echo think, chamber, man, because I, dude, this is like, we would have women's ordination in our church if it wasn't for, the largely minor, like African contingency and South American contingency in our church, you know? So I, my point is just that a lot of times people don't know from whence their views come. And I think this is why we have to become more biblical in our perspectives. Ooh. Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, we start with scripture, we end with scripture. It's what defines all of our reality. It's where we inform our positions. Not, you know, like you're saying, not being Christian in the generic sense, like the Ku Klux Klan could be Christian, but right. Christian in the biblically defined sense where we're biblical Christians. And I think this is where we come to harmony. This is where we come to Because it's, imp it's important to understand that the, the, reason I, the, the reason I can condemn the Ku Klux Klan's Christianity, it's on biblical grounds, biblical that, I, grounds. that I do that. So exactly. like, it's, it, I, I mean, it's right. So like, so I, that's why a lot of individuals, I get why people are mad and frustrated. I really do. I'm sympathetic, like Lord knows I'm sympathetic to it. But what I think needs to happen is a distinction needs to make, be made between the message and individuals that you've met that claim the name Seventh-day Adventist. I do not believe you can indict the Seventh-day Adventist message as a white supremacist message. I do not think you could do that historically. I don't think you could do it theologically or, or, like, or, or on any of those grounds. I think if you take up the historical uh, blossoming of this message and you look, if you read any, look, look, man, if you read the periodicals of any of the pioneers, read you can the accuse, Southern work. 
that's it. Southern you Russia. can you can accuse none of them of white supremacy. Not Joseph Bates, not James White, not Jay, uh, not Loughborough, not Andrews, not any of them. Now, why why that is important is because these are the individuals that worked out like the, the, the initial stages of what we were as a people. And they were very clear where like where they stood. And what why I love them is because they proved to me that white skin does not automatically mean that you are indicted as white supremacists. Like you do not have to automatically be because they weren't and they were very much white. Andrews was a yeah. white man. John yeah. Byington was a uh, the the first general conference president was a white man who was very active at in the underground railroad like yeah. that's the truth that's a thing that that that's the truth so now you have to spend, wow. yes you have to play that forward now there may be leadership there may be individuals who are leaders in the church right now who are white supremacists that might be because they're in america they are in this context they're white i'm not saying one way or another but if we were to find one if we were to sniff one out and find one that is not an indictment on the movement by any stretch of the imagination by any stretch i'm sorry i'm getting like i'm getting worked no, I up it. man i love it i just don't like that move it's lazy to me I, and i i think it so harms much more than it does good so much laziness out there brother i i feel like right now uh, there's so much intellectual laziness and emotion that's driving so much of what people are saying and, and doing so last thing that we want to talk yeah, about yeah yeah right right the second time um for your time because you're up late and i'm not um <laughs> in australia so dude uh maybe this can springboard into further conversation but i just want to end here mm -hmm. i have begun to differentiate between the black lives matter movement and the meaning of the term black lives matter and the reason why i've decided and begun to do that is because uh on the black lives matter website there's all kinds of stuff that i'm averse to that i think most americans Adventist christians would be averse to um okay. i guess the, the, the one of the one of the and it's it's not hidden it's just it's out front and center um the dissolution of the nuclear family is part of the Black Lives Matter agenda, um, which most black people in America or any people in America would not support that as a, as a goal. Um, the uh, transgender rights and the, the full normal, the, the normalization on every level of American society of transgenderism as perfectly normal, perfectly healthy, perfectly right. Um, and so just on those two things right there, you've got this kind of sense like, oh, this is not so much, this isn't just about Black Lives Mattering. This is about a certain kind of ideology in regards to human beings and um, society and how it should function. And so that, that's not something that I would fully wholeheartedly support. And so we're now posed with this problem of this movement that on, like on the level of what the term means, yeah, we're, we're, we're as Adventist Christians wanting to say, Yes, let's, let's always acknowledge and recognize that Black Lives Matter and that the shadow of the past hangs over our Black communities. And we want to, as a, as a body of believers, be of service and of use to our Black communities. And how do we do that better? And how do we serve them? And how do we be Jesus to all of our community? And in particular, the Black lives that matter, because they matter to us. And, and we want to show that and preach that and, and assist in that movement. But we don't want to you know, become kind of co-opted by kind of neo-Marxists or like kind of communist thinkers into just saying, oh yeah, well, 
you know, that's, I guess, so, so I'm just commenting on this saying, I, I want to give you a chance to comment on it as well. And, you know, how do we as Adventist Christians differentiate between the two? I guess that's easy. I guess it's just say amen to the term Black Lives Matter and just don't join the group. <laughs> you know, just don't become a, a charter member or a paying member of the, of the actual, you know, kind of politically driven group. Um, anyway, so I, I guess for me, I'm seeing a lot of, I don't know, like Ben Carson said this. I saw him on a YouTube clip the other day and I thought it was okay. Um, anything I see of Ben that pops up on my YouTube thing, I'll, I'll watch it because he's an Adventist mm-hmm. church member. So he, he said something to the effect of if you, if you're pre-committed to principles of government that are contrary to our own, what better way to, to kind of make your cause successful than co-opt issues of race? So basically you, you utilize the issue of race to further your political agenda. That's kind of what he was saying. He was saying that was his commentary on the Black Lives Matter movement, not on the, the meaning of the term Black Lives Matter. So I think he was doing the same thing that I would do is just saying, hey, I differentiate between what the, what the saying means and what most people are out protesting for versus, you know, the particular political organization that has certain beliefs that, you know, that may, may be counter constitutional. I don't know. So that's, I'm kind of, I feel that that's, that's something that we should do. Um, and we should be careful of because yeah, we like, I always hate when people commit to stories before, before knowing the facts of a situation. So um, what I mean by that is just like a false, a false theology why did most people accept it? Because of the story that's attached to it. So let's say non-Trinitarianism, an unbiblical teaching that's not supported by the spirit of prophecy. So I'm a person who, say, is more on the conservative side of the Adventist church. And as a conservative in the Adventist church, I may be unhappy with certain, the liberalization of the church and maybe some of its leanings and whatever. And so a group comes to me and they say, well, you know what, this is, the church is just kind of getting very Babylonian. And, you know, our pioneers, they had different views on some things. So they're telling me a story now about the pioneers and who they really were. And and because we've fallen away from the pioneers teaching, that's why we're getting so crazy and wacky. And hey, listen, this was their belief on the Trinity or on the, on the, on the nature of God or the, 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 you know, the father and son relationship and the divinity of Christ. And so I, I begin to, if I'm that person, accept the, their, their heretical non-Trinitarian teaching, not really by being taught the teaching from the scripture, but rather accepting the narrative about the teaching. Mm-hmm. And so I think political movements do the same thing. Like, so they'll say, you know, Hey, black lives matter. And then this is the solution. Um, and, and, and the story that that's being told, the narrative that's being communicated, um, that has basis in fact, uh, is not altogether factual. And I think we're touching on this in this conversation where you were saying all the great reformers of the past would point to the constitution, but some of the Black Lives Matter proponents are not doing that. They're just saying the whole constitution's crap. Let's tear it down and let's start over again and create like kind of a, a egalitarian utopia that sounds a whole lot like communist Russia, you know? So. Anyways, I think yeah. a lot of people are being sold a narrative that they're not confirming the facts of. 
So that this makes is sense. What, yeah, for sure. And and this is what I, what I would say to that is, and this just speaks to one of the common themes in this this whole conversation, has been there's a demand. We we live in a moment, a current moment that demands intellectual intellectual rigor. Like laziness is not gonna help anybody, right? And so the, what, what, as you were talking, it reminded me of a story. I was just reading a book this week. Um, by James Baldwin, and he was talking about there was this UN riot. There was a there were several. There was a group of black people. It was called a riot, like in the news. But there was this uprising, this frustration because there was an uh, an African Lumumba, I think, was the African figure who was assassinated. Now, when it hit the news, when it hit the news, they said that the the, the news was talking about how you know, this was um, Marxism, because we were, when when this happened, we were like right in the throes of the Cold War. And so Russia yep. was the culprit of everything, like the, they were the, the, the sneaky underlying current <laughs> of, of, of everything. And so right. they, what they were saying was like, this is Russian provocateurs, um, communist provocateurs. And Baldwin makes this very sharp observation. And he says that to do that, to dismiss uh, Black frustration in America right. uh, and to say that they can only, the, the only time that they're so like complicit with the, the life that they're living right. that, and that the only time they can be moved to like frustration is through like prov prov provocation by right. foreign entities. It, that, yeah. that, is, that is a problematic narrative. That itself is a problem. It doesn't follow. Uh, yeah, it no. doesn't follow. Yeah. No. And so what I would say to anyone who's really genuinely like trying to figure out like where they sit with all this is just separate like that we can sit and think through this. Right. So I the, the, so like you're saying, like that differentiation between the, the 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 motto or the call, the challenge that Black Lives Matter is not new. It's not new in America. And what I mean now that the, that specific hashtag is new. But man, like you can trace that back. The civil rights movement was this, this idea that black lives matter along the same lines as every other life and they should be honored as such. It goes all the way back to Frederick Douglass and Du Bois and Ida B. Wells. So like that, so to, to act like black lives matter as an idea surfaced in 2012 is just historically inaccurate. It doesn't make sense and it will get you into trouble. Now, the reason I'm making that point is that it, I should, if as, as a Christian, I hear Black Lives Matter and my knee-jerk reaction is to dismiss, I would say that that is a call for me to examine my heart because I shouldn't hear, if I hear some, if I heard a Native American say to me, Native American Lives Matter, and, I, and my knee-jerk reaction is, wait a minute, but Black Lives Matter too, then that's, there's a problem there. That, and the problem is, with them it's with me i shouldn't my 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 knee-jerk reaction should not be dismissal it shouldn't be it shouldn't so what we can what if fully... you have and i i, I agree 100 but what if you have a disagreement on the facts like for example like i know some pretty sincere people who would say look i support the notion i support the idea that black right? lives matter but i don't support the idea that institutionally they haven't mattered Okay, then we can sit and that. That's and, a debate. That's a second yeah, debate. And, that, and yeah. we have to, and, and, and that's an important part of this conversation. We yeah. have to, as Americans, sit down. And, and that's immediately, look, that, that's what I go to. When, I, when I'm talking to yeah. people and we're talking to Black Lives Matter and they go, yeah, but I, I ask them historically, point to me 
when it ended and when it like we then we begin to hash it out like like we sit down yeah. and we talk because we know that slavery was a thing we know that jim crow was a thing <laughs> we know right. so like so where can, can where can we start to figure out when we worked our way out of it if you believe we worked our way out of it i'm not going to yes. dismiss you and like but yep. there, there's room and what for are the solutions and exactly. what are the solutions right like i think this yes. is dude this walter williams documentary i loved it yesterday because Firstly, because he's smart, you know, and like you, you get it. Like when you hear the guy articulate his thoughts, you're like, okay, yeah, this this dude, he he's been thinking for a long time and very intensely, and he's a naturally intelligent guy. So uh, one of the things he talks about is really interesting, dude. And he's as a he's an an economist, and I think he's a political conservative. I don't know his politics, but as far as that, his economics, he he is a believer in the free market. Uh, and he, he, something he said in the, in the documentary was that he says that economics usually brings people to their senses. Mm-hmm. And he says it's usually the most natural way to bring people to their senses mm-hmm. um, rather than uh, the imposition of government. and not. So he, he, he was saying in the thing, he used basketball and football as an example. He said that there was no political action necessary um, on the part of government to uh, affect you know the major leagues to let uh, Jackie Robinson play. That basically was something that was done by a, an owner. Uh, that that was an act that was done by the owner uh, of a team, and he took a risk because you know mm-hmm. it could it could have been a disaster. Mm-hmm. You know if right. Jackie Robinson right. gets in and fails, if he maybe kind of he's getting mistreated the whole time by other players. So if he kind of loses his temper and punches someone on the field, like it's over. It's over. I actually read a really cool Time Magazine article as an aside on Jackie Robinson and the, and the scout who found him and chose him. He, in all of his memoirs, he says that there were other black players who were better uh, players than Jackie Robinson. He said, but he never found a man with a better character. Ooh. And he said he knew he needed to find someone with a superior character to function in, the, in a hostile environment, you know, like he did. And so he chose him on the basis of character, not on the basis of talent. I, I see that's kind of interesting. Hey, with God as well. Like you see that kind of spiritual dynamic there that God chooses yeah. on the basis of character, um, not on the basis of talent. He's not a respecter of persons. Um, so like, yeah. So Jackie plays, he's a smashing success. And as soon as he's a success, now the talent pool of all black Americans is open to, to team owners if they want it. And they're going to be disadvantaged, right? In competition. Right if right. they don't access that pool of talent. So now, because right. before you had 50, not 50%, but you had a limited amount of talent. You only had the, ta- the talent of white Americans accessible right, right. to you, maybe right, Italian right. Americans and whatever else. Um, you know, different shades of white America, you had that, that talent accessible. But now with Jackie Robinson, wow, one team had accessed all this talent. And once he did well, they, could, they were free as a team to hire any black people they wanted right. to. And now other teams had to keep up with it. They had to keep up or else they were just going to be left behind. So now they had a financial incentive. Um, and he said, what, what affected the major leagues and the NBA to the point that they would, what affected them hiring black people was excellence, performance and excellence. And that drove it, right? So, so black men are barred from playing in the NBA, but they play anyways. And they do fantastically in their own leagues and different areas. And, and so it's undeniable that these guys are amazing at basketball. Mm-hmm. And so you hire them eventually. It's just a matter of time. So they break mm-hmm. the barrier, not because of government intervention, but rather mm-hmm. because of a free market. And so his contention was, look, and then now you see just 
excellence, excellence, excellence. And then he kind of cites just different welfare programs that he feels are failures and have accomplished nothing over time. Yet at the same time, people are patting themselves on the back for their success in helping black communities through various programs. And so, so I'm just saying all this because I was starting off with the point, what's the solution? Like, what is the solution? And there's different approaches and beliefs and interpretations, and we're not political people necessarily, but I feel like that's a conversation that people should be having to a degree. And I don't think it's a conversation many people are having at all. And I think it's because of politics. So you have certain, like, yeah, anyways, politics basically means I want to be in power. And so I'll use whatever arguments and cases I can to be in power. Unfortunately, that's not yeah. yeah, I was going to say that, yeah, like that's interesting, right? It begs the question of how genuine any given politician is, because that's if right. you want to, if you want to get elected there, there, you, you could, it was interesting to me. <laughs> it was interesting to me to see how many corporations uh, were calling, like saying, you know, Black Lives Matter and do it oh. like in the last few weeks. And the reason I don't, I don't, I don't mean to laugh at anybody or be dismissive, but it's it, one can no, it's understand. Okay. Be dismissive, do it. No. <laughs> I'm dismissive, do it. I dismiss it's, them all. I think they're full of baloney. Right. It's inter- It's advantageous. I think about. All right, I, I hate to pick on him, but I think about Roger Goodell, right, over the the, the commissioner uh, of the NFL, yeah. and I see, I see his. Now he could have had a watershed moment and changed. Right. Time will tell. But I will say this. It was advantageous of him to have the watershed moment at the moment he had it. So that we, will, we will find out if it's genuine. But he had his chance when it was unpopular three years ago yeah. to position himself differently. And because it wasn't advantageous then, he didn't do it, right? So, like, I, I find – I just find suspicious anybody who right now is like, yeah, like – Black Lives Matter, and because like you should, I mean, it, Brother, it makes dollars and cents to say that right now. It makes uh, me so frustrated, makes, by the way. Yeah. It makes me so frustrated because, dude, right now in China, I've just discovered this. David was telling me he's just watched a, a couple documentaries and he's reading a book about this. There are a million people right now in China, a million Muslims. I don't know what they're called. Their their mm-hmm. people group mm-hmm. are called mm-hmm. a million of them. Chinese Muslims in concentration camps mm-hmm. in China. Mm-hmm. Right now, you know how much the NBA is saying about it? Nothing. 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 But Black Lives Matter. <laughs> there's a hat. There's, it's on their backboards. It's on the middle of their courts now. Yeah. It's going to be everywhere, right? On their websites. Yeah. So they're just so concerned with oppressed Black Americans that they're just Black Lives Matter. Yet they're making millions and maybe more in China, billions of dollars in China. While China has people in like Nazi style concentration. Camps. So listen, so okay, so it's me. I was just talking to my son about this. Fifteen year old, uh, he's fifteen now. So we we worked through some of these things, and he was telling me, you know, because the NBA had a mo- like Daryl uh, for the listeners who may not know mm-hmm. the story. Like Daryl Morey tweeted out something about the Hong Kong protests. Yes, this was last year. Smashed. Yeah, yeah, got, got destroyed, smashed. and the players, and and there were certain players who will say Black Lives Matter, who then said, hey, listen, I'm not really sure about protests. Like maybe we should, because it was not economically feasible to come down. And that's why I, if, if there's one takeaway from that, I would hope anybody listening to all, our several conversations would hear is that we need to take this, the, the black white interaction in America and understand it as a concretized 
a moment of the overarching like great controversy i think what made i think what the problem is that we we try to treat it as if it's singular and like um the like uh um so isolated and, and, situation yeah like it's like it's a manifestation of its own like own, a one-of-a-kind thing right yep. now that yep. doesn't somebody might be afraid of me saying that like well does that water it down no it's still about justice and injustice and a but it broadens it out so that you can see because someone should be crying out for those muslims somebody should be crying out like there there are the, and and i think when we see this issue in america as, as as an unfolding of an ongoing story then i think it'll help us to see it better but not just it better but we'll be able to see uh it largely and so one thing as as we've been talking today like one thing that keeps coming to my mind is the trial of jesus and i'm trying so i'm just gonna throw it out there i'm not really sure why but it just keeps because when jesus stands up barabbas is there too right and and many of us don't stop to think who barabbas is he was barabbas a is a freedom fighter that's yes. who he is barabbas was there to set people free but yeah. the freedom that Barabbas was offering was not a freedom that was developed and, and well-meaning and, and, and had any depth to it. But that's what the people wanted. And we need yeah. to be careful in 2020 that we are not crying out for Barabbas, man. That's really what I'm like. One, one thing that I would hope is that we are not asking for Barabbas in the name of justice because it's easy for us to all believe that we love jesus but barabbas looked similar enough but he spoke to uh the individual to the self in in a way where they were yeah. like we don't care what you do with that jesus guy but jesus at the beginning of his ministry what did he say he was here to set captives free right right so there right. are two freedoms afoot just like back then just like now, and we have oh. to be thinking Christians so that we're not asking and clamoring for Barabbas in the name of Jesus. Because I think that's a mistake that many of us are going to make if we're not too careful. <laughs> Dude, that's a powerful point. Amen. Yeah, I think this goes on both sides, right? Like if you're, if you're the kind of person who views the riots in America, like through the lens of, well, this is rebellion, this is lawlessness, and this is a co-opting of a just cause in order to just incite rebellion and craziness and disorder if that's the perspective you come from or if you come from the perspective of no i'm citing extremes mm -hmm. right yeah yeah like if you're coming from the perspective of well you know the system itself is rigged altogether and it will always be rigged and until we tear it down and rebuild it then we're going to have these same outcomes um whatever extreme you come from but if you're a, if you're a genuine or if you're anywhere in between if you're a genuine follower of jesus christ and you've been born again through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, through the word of God. If that's really your experience, then what you just said is relevant. Yeah. Don't, don't seek for government salvation, like Barabbas to come and militarily protect you. Realize that first and foremost, the issue is you need salvation. The, 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 kind, that, the kind that Jesus really offered. But, yeah. Bro, hey, thanks, man, for your time. This is awesome yeah, chatting. Man. And God bless you guys for listening in with us. And we hope to see you again. And uh, yeah. Um, Keep talking, keep sharing, and keep focusing on Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, God bless. Amen.